here. I'm Chantal Fallins. She's Stephanie McNeil, and you're watching AM to DM. Good morning. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. We made it. I know. I've had to work two back-to-back -back weekends. This is my first weekend in like three weeks where I have two days off, and I cannot wait. Oh my gosh. What are you doing? I'm sitting at my house. Yes, yeah, same. I'm sleeping. Like people are like, what are you doing? I'm, I'm going to be snoozing all weekend. Yeah. So let's care. get into the news. <laughs> let's start with this tweet from Marie Connor. Bristol Palin is joining the cast of MTV's Teen Mom. That's a joke in itself, so I don't need to come up with one about it. Yeah, you and I both, I saw this uh, on Twitter this morning, and I totally just was like, ooh. I was like, first of all, is she still 16? I thought she was like a grown woman. She's definitely older than me, so I'm not really sure how she's a quote unquote teen mom. Uh, if you read the story in TMZ, I guess she's going to be filling in for Farah, who has, I guess, burned one too many bridges yeah. at MTV. Something I didn't really know was possible, but apparently it is. So, yeah, apparently she's going to be on, and we'll get to see her in action. Well, I'm going to tune in. I'm not going to lie. I know, I know. Like, like we're not going to tune in. I mean, I watch it anyway, so it's totally <laughs> fine. Yeah, well, anyways, uh, on to other news. We had a big scoop last night from BuzzFeed News reporters Ryan Mack and Charlie Wardell. As Charlie tweeted, Zuckerberg secretly called Trump after the election to congratulate his campaign that spent millions on Facebook ads. Charlie joins us now. How you doing? Hey, Charlie. Charlie, what... So what did Zuckerberg say to Trump on that phone call? So uh, we, we, we've spoken to some sources um, who have you know, confirmed this phone call. Um, the, the exact details of which um, are, are not completely clear, but what we do know is in the, in the sort of direct aftermath of the 2016 election, um, Mark Zuckerberg didn't come to this big meeting with all these tech executives. Sheryl uh, Sandberg, uh, one of his deputies, and at the company uh, did, but he did place this call, a call which uh, certain members of his staff were unaware of um, until very recently. Um, and in this call, basically, uh, what we had heard was that uh, you know he congratulated the, the president on his election and also on uh, the team's use of the Facebook campaign, which uh, the company sort of believes was um, remarkable for, for many reasons. Oh, wow. Remarkable indeed. So you reported that Facebook was actually very happy with how Trump used their platform during the election. How come? Uh, so Facebook uh, offered uh, up its tools uh, to run advertisements, targeted advertisements, as it does for companies, uh, to both campaigns, to the Trump campaign, to the Clinton campaign, uh, and provided what, what they called uh, embeds, which are people who are sort of helping them with their the best practices of how to uh, how to create these ad campaigns and and target voters and, and run them. Um, both sides had that, but uh, well, the Hillary campaign sort of used Facebook as a, you know, a side and, and sort of a, a, a niche way to reach some people. The Trump campaign basically uh, used Facebook as a primary method of advertisement. They put millions of dollars in. Most, uh, uh, a bulk of their ad spend was put into Facebook. And they created a new system where they were constantly targeting uh, users in different ways. So, uh, they would run a, an advertisement geared towards a certain group of people, and then they would, you know, test and refine it. Um, and that uh, that process worked really well. Um, they were they were able to run so many different variations of the same ads. They f they figured out eventually how to get the right ones to the right people. 
Yeah, it's so fascinating. And one of the interesting things that I read in your piece that I was kind of blown away by was the fact that a lot of Trump campaign staffers, a few actually went on the record to talk to you to say they're kind of annoyed that Facebook hasn't kind of come out and said, great job, guys, on how you used our platform, right? Right, right. And and so uh, in addition to you know some of those interviews and interviews with former Facebook staffers, we obtained uh, some company Facebook internal company presentations and memos that show that Facebook privately, um, you know, amongst itself was taking some of the learnings from the Trump campaign and trying to uh, incorporate them into their own marketing strategy for their own ad campaigns for Facebook, um, which is, you know, a, a, a sort of a something that they've, they've tried to distance themselves uh, basically since the election from the Trump campaign, from that success. They haven't publicly touted it like uh, Facebook, you know, touted the success of the Obama campaign using Facebook. Um, and so some of these staffers are, um, are frustrated because I think they know, or they have told us at least, that they, they have heard from Facebook before that it was used so well by the Trump campaign. And then, uh, and then they've sort of been reached with silence in the aftermath. Wow, uh, here's a tweet from Ryan Mack. Some are saying that it's not surprising a major CEO called the winner of a presidential election. Partly true, except that Facebook has largely avoided talking about its work with the Trump campaign, while Zuckerberg has implicitly challenged the administration on big issues. Charlie, why was this phone call being criticized so much? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of there are a lot of people who um, are going to criticize, you know, any anyone who's not a, a head of state or someone in the government who's who's talking to this president because he is a uh, um, obviously a very polarizing figure. But I think you know what Ryan's tweet was trying to get at is Mark Zuckerberg before the uh, the the election took a couple of sort of public stands against. I think he, in one um, speech he said, you know, we shouldn't be building walls, things like that. Um, He's he's sort of been against some of the things that 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 Trump has done, and and he's definitely wanted to distance himself. But but that this relationship is different uh, privately than it is publicly. Privately, you know, there's a need for him to be in contact. Um, there is, you know, this is a man who runs the biggest social network, and then this is the the leader of the free world. So, I I think basically what it shows is that these relationships are different privately than they are publicly. Yeah, for sure. And it was kind of a fascinating look behind the curtain. Charlie, thank you so much for getting up early to join us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Here's a tweet from NBC News. The NFL and National Football League Players Association have agreed to halt enforcement of rules regarding the new national anthem policy. Joining us to talk about this story is Daily News Sports, Race and Social Issues columnist Karen J. Phillips. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Happy to, happy to be here. Thank you. Happy to have you. So to start, what exactly does this agreement entail? Um, basically, it, uh, it came out last night uh, kind of out of nowhere that supposedly the NFLPA and the NFL came together uh, and put a halt, um, a, a stoppage of how long. We don't absolutely know because uh, we don't know what's coming down the pipeline next. But the anthem policy is null and void for right now. And that also includes the uh, announcement that the Miami Dolphins came out with yesterday that they uh, potentially were going to, uh, any player that kneeled this upcoming season or didn't come out and stand and follow the anthem, knew 
the new Anthem protocol was going to be suspended for up to four games, possibly. Wow. So what's the response been from some of the players in the NFL? Well, with this happening last night, um, it's, it's, it's kind of too early to tell. Uh, I'm, I'm a little – I wasn't shocked about the, the Dolphins an announcement yesterday. I was a little stunned by the announcement last night from the NFLPA coming out telling us this in their, in their press release because um, I've been very, very, very critical of the NFLPA um, for quite some time. Um, and while this is a win for them, because it, in their last press release from a couple of weeks ago, they said they want to have conversations with the NFL instead of litigation. Um, and I was critical uh, with them about that for always wanting to talk to them instead of actually doing something in a courtroom where something can actually happen. But it seems like they won on this one and they got this to stop. But um, as much as a win as this appears to be, I'm not really going to pat them on the back for cleaning up a mess that never should have happened in the first place. Yeah, and the NFL originally imposed the anthem policy without consulting the players' union. So do you think it's likely at all that the players will have a real say as the negotiations go forward? In a perfect world, you would like to think so, but I don't. I was at the players, uh, at the owners' meeting when they announced uh, this new anthem policy. Like, I was sitting right there in the first row, and we quietly over the next couple of days after that press conference found out that this got passed without the NFLPA or the players even knowing that this was coming. And if you forgot, at the end of the season, most of the demonstrations on the field, whether they, whether they were a raised fist or, or, or kneeling in protest, they were very small in number. So this thing was kind of going away. And the NFL kind of just brought this back up and they tried to just pull the rug out from under the players by not talking to them. And we kind of found out that the unanimous decision that they said this was from other owners wasn't necessarily unanimous. Um, so we would hope that now maybe some, some conversations are happening where the owners are actually listening to the players, but there isn't much history uh, to prove that that's what's actually going to happen. So I don't have any faith in it that it will. Yeah, we will definitely continue to keep following this story. Thanks for joining us, Karin. Thanks for having me. A disturbing story came out yesterday from BuzzFeed News science reporter Zara Hirji detailing how the government, quote, lost control of the biggest nuclear cleanup in the U.S. As she tweeted, this is 2018. We still we shouldn't still be contaminating people with plutonium. A worker at the Hanford site told BuzzFeed News. Zara joins us now. Zara, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. Thanks for having me. So how did the cleanup at this nuclear plant spiral out of control so badly? Yeah, so in the words of Ty Blackford, who is the president and CEO of CH2M Hill, the contractor running this job, mistakes were made. That's what he sent in an email to staff. And a big report coming out of the contractor a couple months later has detailed some of those mistakes. But they include things like ineffective ways of watching and um, tracking the contamination. So they have these air monitors that are supposed to alarm when there are a certain level of hot particles in the air, but they didn't. Even though there were other signs of contamination across the site, 
they didn't slow down the job because the air monitors showed there were no problems. There's also poor communication between upper management and the workers. And those were just some of the many mistakes and poor decisions made that led to the third contamination event in a year at this one project in Hanford. Wow. Is the government actually being forthcoming about how the project is going at this point? So it's, well, right now, actually, since the latest contamination event in December, demolition has totally stopped. So what they were doing is they were tearing down an old, very contaminated plutonium plant. And after the latest events at the end of December, they halted demolition, and that halt is still ongoing. So there isn't too much to report on the progress, but the discussions going on behind the scene are how are they going to restart more safely, better. And that has been less clear and less forthcoming. But I think part of that has to do with they haven't quite figured it out. Yeah, you profiled a man in your story who you referred to as Bojay, who, you know, he talked a lot about his fears about getting contaminated and working at the plant. And I think the heartbreaking thing at the end of the story was he said, I will continue to keep working there because I don't have a choice. I have to take care of my family, but I live with this fear that I might get sick and then leave my family and they might be even worse off. What was it like talking to him and hearing his story and how many of him are there? So he was one of 42 workers that are known to have been contaminated with plutonium from the events last year. And he has a really powerful story. He clearly got emotional at some parts during our interview. And he's just, you know, he's passionate about his job and he knows that there are risks but he feels like what happened went beyond those risks, um, that you know, clearly these mistakes were made and that workers like himself were raising concerns along the way and they weren't being listened to. Wow, how much longer do you think this cleanup will go on? So the teardown of this one project will probably last a year or so. Um, whenever it restarts. But this is just one project in a sprawling nuclear waste site, which is actually half the size of Rhode Island. And the government estimates that cleaning up that entire site will last until 2070 at least. And I'll say that their estimates have been pushing back as the years go on. So it's hard to say exactly how long it will go, but it might be longer than that. Well, this new cleanup story is something we'll definitely continue to follow. Thanks for joining us, Zara. Thanks for having me. Well, Fire Tweets is up next, but first, BuzzFeed News is at Comic-Con in San Diego, my hometown this weekend. Take a look about what we learned from the new cast of the Charmed reboot. Super exciting. Welcome back. Yeah, I actually would encourage everyone to read Zara's piece. It highlights a really human issue, and I think 
the the man she profiled, which I mentioned briefly, is a really compelling character. Yeah. So um, we'll tweet it out, and I definitely recommend everyone read it. But now we're gonna do something a little more fun. Yes. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. Are you? I'm ready. I'm, I was born ready. Okay. Let's do this. Smoth. Smoth. I don't know. If you're best man at your mate's second wedding after being best man at the first, is it okay to start my speech with, welcome back everyone? <laughs> That's pretty funny. I don't know if- The shade of it all. I don't know if the second uh, wife slash husband would- Yeah, would appreciate that Would be too into it, but <laughs> I think it's funny. <laughs> all right, next tweet. Kyle, you, dumb. Can I ask you a question? Me, brilliant linguist. That's literally the only type of thing you can ask. That's a deep AF. Yeah. I like that his uh, screen name is Kyle Plant yeah. emoji. Really straight to the point. Okay, so this next one, I we may have selected in two parts. One, because of the tweet itself, but two, because it comes from a person who on Twitter is calling themselves Big Lexi. Yes, and Stephanie <laughs> genuinely wanted to do this just so she can say Big Lexi. Big Lexi. Hey, Big Lexi, I hope you watch am to dm Okay. Here we go. It's from Big Lexi. If you shop at Urban Outfitters and don't immediately walk to the sales section, you got a Picasso in your house? Or you got a Picasso in your house? Either way. Yeah, if it's Urban Outfitters, yeah, it's gonna be hefty. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I've never not shopped in the sales section. But I think we need to start a hashtag campaign. Big Lexi, we love you. Hashtag Big Lexi. Come on in, Come on in Big Lexi. We love you, Big Lexi. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on, next tweet. It's DJ Luigi. <laughs> the problem with treat yourself is that I don't know how to stop. I had a bad day in April and I've been treating myself ever since. Okay, DJ Luigi. Yes. Yeah, I think that's why I'm poor because I'm always like, but I deserve it. Yeah. I like go to work and it's like, I mean, my job is like not okay. that hard. You know, it's like, it's, it's air conditioned. And then I'm like, oh, I deserve to like stop Listen, at the store. Lean into self care. Home. Okay, just do it. Yeah, self care is the reason why I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Stevenson, all this talk about big dick energy and small dick energy, why don't we stop and consider the possibilities of renewable dick energy? Oh, Yeah, deep. oh, that's, okay. that's a good one, Michael. Mm -hmm. We feel that, we feel that. All right, you ready for the tweet of the day? I am, I am. All righty. Look at that synergy. After my funeral, someone hacked my page and say, appreciate y'all coming out. <laughs> Plot twist, I ain't dead. That, that's iconic. I know. That's you like bit. Tom Sawyering it? Isn't that a plot yeah, thing? Yeah, I kind of want to come out the class and be like, psych. Like, I really want to do that just because. <laughs> like, I really want to. Okay, okay. That is uh, good for all your family members to know. Yes. You know, Mom, she, please make She that might up. just like be like, wag and wait. Like, oh, this yes. is actually a whole big joke. Yes. I don't know how happy they would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, up next, we're going live from the district for more fun. Going live from the district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent Tarini Party. Good morning, Tarini. Good morning, guys. Happy Friday. Happy, Happy Friday. Friday. Tarini, how are you washing off the stink of this year long week? <laughs> <laughs> it has been quite the week. I'm not sure how it's going to come off. 
Yeah, and it never will. It'll just become a part of our essence. <laughs> so Trump invited Putin to visit him in D.C. Fun. Check out Dan Coates' reaction when Andrea Mitchell broke the news to him at the Aspen Security Forum. We have some breaking news. The White House has announced on Twitter that Vladimir Putin is coming to the White House in the fall. Say that again. <laughs> Yeah, Torini, why did this announcement come as such a surprise to him? He is the head of Intel. Shouldn't he know this stuff, I would hope? Right. So in a, in a typical administration, someone like him would definitely know that and be involved in the decision-making process on that. But as we've seen you know, in the last two years, and especially this past week, this administration is anything but typical. And I think that response from Dan Coats yesterday was stunning and something that even the White House was talking about. There's been some reporting and some concern that he responded that way, even if he was not looped into the decision. Uh, it seems that they're a little annoyed that he responded in such an obvious manner. <laughs> Wow. Can you talk us through why Putin coming to D.C. is such a bad idea in the first place? Right. So Vladimir Putin, as we now know, thanks to our intelligence agencies, um, attacked the United States in terms of uh, interfering in the 2016 elections. And as Dan Coats and others in the intelligence community have repeatedly warned, Russia is trying to do that again in the 2018 election. And in the midst of all of this, you have the president extending an invitation to have Putin come to D.C. in the fall. So the, the timing, the dynamics, it just it seems very odd to a lot of people, especially within his own party. Yeah, obviously it seems like, you know, Dan Coats was taken aback by this announcement. Were other members of the administration taken aback? You said, like, the Republican Party. Who else was kind of shocked by this? I think everyone. I mean, what we saw was just uh, widespread, uh, pretty much uh, amazement that this was happening. And the way it was announced, it was Sarah Sanders getting on Twitter and just kind of announcing it very casually yesterday afternoon. Uh, this is a very big deal. And uh, it's unclear how many members of Congress got a heads up in terms of, you know, people on the Foreign Relations Committee, how many members of the cabinet got a heads up before this was just kind of dropped uh, yesterday. So is this kind of the reality of the Trump administration that they're on two completely separate pages on some of this stuff? That's what it seems like. We've seen, uh, you know, throughout the last year and a half, they're, they're on parallel tracks. So parts of the administration have been tough on Russia, you know, with the, in the with the indictments that we've seen. And then you have the president who makes comments that are, you know, in, uh, that seem to be flattering toward uh, uh, the Russian president. So we've seen these kind of parallel uh, opposing uh, tracks here when it comes to uh, foreign policy toward Russia. And it gives the president this um, idea that he's actually being tough on Russia. We've We've seen him say that a lot this week. Uh, I'm, you know, I've been tougher on Russia than any other president, but it's really members of the administration separate from the White House that have been tough on Russia. Uh, so here's a tweet from BuzzFeed Lisa Tazi. The Senate unanimously passed a symbolic measure Thursday aimed at dissuading Trump from accepting a deal proposed by Putin to turn over American officials for questioning by Russian investigators. Torini, the Senate doesn't agree on much but why were they unanimous, unanimous on this? 
I, I think there was what you saw yesterday was bipartisan agreement. That's uh, an agreement like that would just be un-American. I think was what we heard from a lot of members of Congress, and it was just something that was stunning to them when it was even first proposed. Uh, and the fact that the White House didn't come out and say anything for several days uh, related to that potential agreement that Putin put on the table. So obviously it sounds like a bad idea just on the face of it, but please, can you walk us through why exactly this is so such a bad idea for America? Right. So the, the deal that was uh, presented uh, by Putin was that in exchange for the 12 intelligence officials uh, that the U.S. could question, he would get uh, some Americans, including uh, the former ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, Something like that would just be uh, pretty wild, uh, I think, is what a lot of Republicans had said in the past week. Uh, and this is something that, you know, protecting an American citizen from someone like Putin is the responsibility in, in, in some ways of the White House and Congress. And I think what you saw Congress do yesterday was, um, although symbolic, a way to say that, that we need to protect our American citizens and our ambassadors abroad. Wild indeed. Here's a tweet from you, Trini. Ivanka Trump has been front and center this week as the White House deals with the fallout from the president's continued comments on Russia's interference in the 2016 election. But she's managed to stay far away from anything related to Russia. Trini, how on earth has Ivanka been able to avoid the Russia summit shit show? Right. So it's been very interesting to watch Ivanka Trump this week. She has been, you know, we know she's been very strategic in when she chooses to engage, which policies she chooses to back, and when she does her TV interviews. We've seen her come out in public a lot this week, but stay very, stay very scripted on her message about workforce training and uh, totally avoid any, anything related to Russia. In part, they've been able to do that with friendly, uh, friendly reporters. Uh, we saw her go on Fox and Friends this morning. We saw her do CNBC earlier this week. So they've kind of done this very strategically, as you know, everything Ivanka Trump does seems to be. Uh, and so they've stayed away largely from anything related to Russia and stayed very much on message, uh, in sharp contrast to what we've seen the president do this week. Yeah, Ivanka was actually on Fox and Friends while we were prepping the show this morning. Did anything significant come out of that interview? It, it didn't. And she, she continued to talk about workforce training. And I think that's the point. She, uh, it, you know, it was a, I think, boring interview uh, in, in some ways because uh, she was not pushed on the topics of the day. She kind of just talked about uh, the White House's message. And uh, we've seen on uh, the president go on Fox and Fred's and kind of do a similar thing where he just kind of talks about what he wants to talk about and isn't quite pushed on the more controversial topics like anything related to Russia. Well, thank you, Tarini. I hope you have a very restful weekend and come back ready for another week of fun. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Up next, I speak with Cora Lewis about how a cute tweet from GMA turned into a heated debate about parental leave in the U.S. Don't go anywhere. had quite the tweet yesterday. It really, really meant a lot to me. I was extremely appreciative and very humbled. Donating vacation time to new moms is a trendy and generous coworker baby shower gift. Well, that tweet was promptly ratioed and this tweet from friend of the show, Taylor Lorenz, summed it up nicely. 
Coworkers making up for employers' lack of adequate maternity leave is not a feel-good story. Well, joining me now to talk about this trend of crowdfunding funding maternity leave is BuzzFeed News reporter Cora Lewis. Cora, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this. My pleasure. So why is this a trend now? Just give me a basic start. <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't be. Um, unfortunately, the U.S. is one of the only countries, industrialized countries in the world, that doesn't mandate paid leave for employees. Uh, so instead, people are coming up with other solutions for how to take time off with their newborns. Yeah, and in January, the governor of Nebraska enacted a maternity leave donation program. Do other states have similar programs like this? Yeah, other states do. Um, a survey found uh, last year that about 15% of employers now offer some version of this donation leave program to their employees. And the federal government also has a policy in place where employees can give time to one another when uh, an emergency happens or a medical condition or a pregnancy. Wow, wow. And you've written in the past about crowdfunding for maternity leave, but that was more focused on, uh, you know, couples who needed money to help with their newborns, correct? So what did the couples that you spoke to tell you about your experience? Yeah, they, um, all of these couples really felt like they were out of options. Uh, they didn't get paid leave from their employers. A lot of them were hourly employees rather than salaried employees. A lot of them didn't have health insurance. This was in 2016 and they're very average American families um, and things have really only gotten worse uh, as we can see by the trend pre-emerging. Right, right. And the Family and Medical Leave Act is something that many workers rely on. Where does it still fall short though so that the U.S. does fall so short in this area? Yeah, so the Family and Medical Leave Act uh, does provide for 12 weeks of unpaid leave which means that your job is waiting for you when you get back, which is something, uh, but it's not paid time, hence the need for crowdfunding. And compared with other countries, we're just, we're all the way at the bottom. Speaking of other countries, can you give me a little bit of a taste of what it's like to have a baby in another country that might have a more generous maternity leave policy? Sure, well in Norway you get more than a year of paid leave uh, when you have a child uh, or adopt a child um, and so you're able to spend a lot of time recovering from birth, uh, getting to know your kid and um, again your job is waiting for you and you're also compensated so you don't have that economic insecurity to worry about. Yeah, so this particular tweet enraged people because GMA framed this as a feel-good story, and in a sense it is, right? Coworkers coming together to help a coworker who might be struggling is a nice story. So, but it does, it is problematic in the sense that it shouldn't have to happen. So how does the coverage of maternity leave you think differ? than say coverage of other economic inequality issues. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a huge problem um, that maternity leave and discrimination against pregnant employees isn't framed as a labor or workplace right or story. Um, instead, the places that cover these stories kind of the most rigorously or the best are often outlets that cater to women um, whose audiences are mainly women, so morning shows and women's magazines, when in fact it's a major issue that affects every workplace and every worker and every employer and every family in this country. What do you think that media companies could do better to highlight the fact that this isn't just a silly fun issue for women, it's actually a very serious thing? 
And well, it's not just for women, it's for men too. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the fact that that tweet went so viral demonstrates that media companies are really behind in an understanding of how the trends are going and how outraged people are and feel. Um, and I think that they should pay attention to that feedback. Uh, like BuzzFeed News is, and <laughs> respond in kind. And they, everyone should be covering uh, the lack of maternity leave. Everyone should be covering paid parental leave policy until it's changed. Yeah, for sure. And it's a healthcare issue as well. You know, having a baby, having maternity leave is for recovering after going through something extremely traumatic. It's not just about playing with your baby, for sure. Yeah. Cora, thank you so much for joining me to talk about this issue. Thank up, you. Up next, Rihanna's coming out with a new dance hall album, and Chantal is here for it, and so are we. Jenna Yamamoto, you tweeted, if Rihanna comes out with a reggae album, I can die after and it will be all good. Amen to that. <laughs> well, guess what? She is. Rolling Stone lit up the internet yesterday when they tweeted out this story confirming the release of Rihanna's dancehall album. Joining me now to talk about this exciting news is Bianca Gracie, associate editor at Billboard. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Are you ready to talk about our queen, oh, Rihanna? I talk about Rihanna all the time. Same. I, I wake up and dream about yeah, Rihanna. Same. So let's start <laughs> off with this tweet from Colin Luis Dyden. Bruh. Rihanna working on a dancehall album and teaming up with all kinds of producers from Jamaica. She about to bust the club wide open. Panda replay still is my jam. Yes. You play this in your car with the bass up or some speakers with good bass, man. Listen, so Rihanna has exploded a lot of times with her Ponder Replay, Man mm -hmm. Down, you know? Like, why specifically is she dedicating so much attention to this genre now? Well, like you just stated, um, Rihanna has been such a big influence um, on dancehall music. She's been talking about it all throughout um, the beginning of her career up until now. The music has always been threaded into her discography, so I think for her, um, I think she wants to do something a little bit different now because, you know, the majority of people see Rihanna as a pop, pop star. So I think for now, you know, after the success of Anti and she was so experimental, you know, being uh, going through dance hall is kind of like the next step for her to break the mold even more. Mm, amazing. Yeah. And we have another tweet here. Um, Chrissy, you tweeted, dance hall, not reggae. Girl, the Caribbean is coming. Rihanna is snapping. <laughs> so for the people who don't know, <laughs> what's the difference between dance hall and reggae? Okay, so dancehall um, is my personal preference, and it originally stemmed in the 1970s um, on a in actual dance halls in Jamaica, where um, there were big so sound systems and DJs were, pl were playing, and they would mix more synthesizers into the music, and the music is more rugged, more aggressive, very sexually explicit, and then reggae, on the other hand, is a little bit more of a slower tempo, and they discuss more topics about politics and social um, issues, and also the love for Rastafari, so there's a big difference um, in the music itself, like the percussions, and also in the lyrics. Mm, do you think Rihanna will stick to the authentic dancehall sound? Oh, of course. I mean, she's already worked with Vibes Cartel. She worked with Sizzla. Um, she's, you know, been seen in photos of Popcorn and Movado. And um, she's worked with uh, reggae artists, um, producers in the past. So this is nothing new for her. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she's not new to this. She's true to this, as I like exactly. to say. Exactly. So Rolling Stone <laughs> reported that Rihanna is choosing only 10 producers out of 500. Um, so basically, is it normal for an artist to have so many songs to choose from? 
Um, it's not really normal. I feel like for Rihanna being a, such a huge uh, artist, a lot of people want to work with her. So they're sending her music, you know, all the time. So for her, you know, she wants to pick the best out of the best, the cream of the crop. So, you know, for 500 songs, I mean, that's a lot for any artist to choose from. But I think for her, she wants to pick the most authentic songs yeah. out of that, that crop. Yeah. Can't wait to see that. And you tweeted, with all those reject songs, <laughs> I'm cringing at the fact that these pop girls are gonna suck them dry of flavor and continue oh, to give yeah. this watered down tropical inspired mess. So one producer <laughs> told Rolling Stone that other artists are questioning yeah. uh, some of the songs that were selected. So basically, um, should this genre be reserved for the authentic you know, stakeholders here, for people who like Rihanna who understand the culture? Oh, for sure. Because um, for me, I'm a big proponent of uh, dancehall music and we've had a huge res uh, resurgence in the early 2000s, you know, with Sean Paul, Elephant Man, Beanie Man. That was a huge time um, in dancehall music going into the mainstream platform. But I feel like now, dancehall has always been a trend in pop music, but it's become more diluted, which is which is the huge issue with it. You know, we've seen it in Justin Bieber's Sorry, uh, Drake's Controller, um, even Ed Sheeran's Shape of You. And the, the influence of the music has always been there, but these artists are not really honing in on the actual producers and the artists to work with. So I think with this new Rihanna album, she's actually going straight to the source, and now the conversation could be flipped to actual Jamaican producers, you know, having their rise once again in music. So as dance hall, you know, it's going to make a big, you know, rise to the stage. Do you think that people are going to love it? What do you think the reception's going to be? I mean, dance hall music, it's so, it's a fun vibe and you know people I think right now in pop music there's kind of a lull and it's very um, emotional and very down and I feel like with dancehall music that we could up uplift people and have a good time. I yeah. love it. I can't wait to see this album, listen to it, smell it, breathe it. Yes, party to it, twerk to it, yes. wine to Left it. Yes, left cheek, right cheek. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Bianca, and talking about our queen, me. Rihanna. All right, up next, Stephanie talks about the curse that was released from the, that opening from that mysterious sarcophagus. Just kidding, kind of. When a 2,000-year-old sarcophagus was found in Egypt, the timeline blew up with people dying to open it. Ooh. One of those people was Julia Reinstein, meme detective certified Hi. and BuzzFeed News <laughs> reporter. Julia, so you are, I would say, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, sarcophagus on Twitter. Oh, thank you. I would like to think so. And you tweeted, what are we all wearing to the mysterious giant black sarcophagus opening day? So I gotta ask you, what'd you wear? So I wasn't prepared because I didn't know they were opening it that day. I just showed up in some black t-shirt dress. Um, definitely wasn't dressed for the occasion, but at least I matched the sarcophagus. That's true. I mean, the sarcophagus matches our souls, which matches your dress, so it all worked out. Worked out great. Well, so since so many people were talking about it, we wanted to do a special edition of Sarcophagus Tweets. Sarcophagus Tweets. Okay, so these are like fire tweets, but they're all about the sarcophagus, hence the buttons. Okay, Julia, take it away. All right. <laughs> Brittany M. Morris tweeted, we really shouldn't open the sarcophagus until we've completed all the side quests. Well, did they? Is that why there has allegedly been no curse yet? Well, we don't know. That's what a cursed person would say, so. Am I cursed? Okay, just gonna move on from that. Zoink Scoob tweeted, 
2012, oh no, Mayan calendar says the world might end and we all could die. 2018, please let the black Egyptian sarcophagus carry a curse that would collectively put us out of our misery. I know, remember in 2012 when everyone was like, oh no, the world might end, and now yeah. people are like, Bring it on. People are like, world end, please. We're dying. The biggest mood. (laughs) (laughs) Big mood. I feel like we were so innocent back then. We were. And now everyone's like, yeah, it's about time. Like, bring on on the apocalypse. (laughs) All right. Wrap this thing up. (laughs) All right. P.S. tweeted, literally 75% of Twitter learned the word sarcophagus only two days ago. Hashtag sarcophagus. <laughs> <laughs> and you just showed off to me that you can actually spell this from memory oh, I can. now. Yeah, no, I learned that this week. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty impressive. You know, not everyone can say that their job, you know, does that much for. Yeah, that's why they pay me the big bucks. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. Michael Oiku tweeted Isn't there a film series on why this is probably a bad idea? I don't think so. Someone should come up with that. They should make that movie, yeah. I think they already tried to make The Mummy <laughs> again, and it was a total disaster, uh, so. Well, no time like the present, then. Maybe this is viral marketing for them. <laughs> That's a good idea. That Brendan would be... Frazier, what if Brendan Fraser <laughs> popped out? He pops out of the hey! coffin. Hey! <laughs> Summer 2019. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I believe anything anymore. Okay, so... Like we said, the sarcophagus was opened. It was, the world held their breath. They cracked that baby open. What was inside? Uh, there were three decomposed skeletons and a lot of red sewage liquid. Blood? No, like just just red sewage that had seeped in, so. I feel uh, like red sewage liquid is a polite euphemism for like blood and guts. It definitely, like I don't think blood would last that long and it was really decomposed, so like it was definitely ground liquid, but there were three skeletons inside. One was fractured in the skull with an arrow and they think they were warriors, so. Warriors, yeah. but why would, war- aren't warriors, warriors like not that important? So in Egypt or whatever, they're super important now. Um, sorry, I wanted to <laughs> not, not throw shade to warriors. <laughs> um, so why would they get this whole big sarcophagus for themselves? You know, I, I do not know yet. Um, why don't I'm, you know more, I, I wish I knew more about the sarcophagus. I guess we'll have to hold and leave it to the experts. I'm not a sarcophagus expert, only a sarcophistan, like we said. So. Right, right. Yes. You know, not all of us can be sarcophagus. <laughs> Experts. <laughs> so how did this turn into a meme? That's a real question here. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, the way in elementary school we all got really hyped for like certain kinds of history. I feel like everyone just got really excited about this cool discovery. It was a really wholesome meme, kind of. It was wholesome in the sense that everyone was saying, I hope it kills us. Well, I guess that's not really the wholesome part. I feel like the wholesome part was everyone was like, ooh, what's going to be inside? But meanwhile, you know, 2018 memes are pretty much all about being like, lol, I want to die. So like... I guess that played into that well, um, and everyone's just kind of waiting for the end in a jokey way. We're all waiting for the end here in the sarcophagus. (laughs) Dark. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so what happens now? Uh, So they're going to do some, I think, forensic analysis and try and figure out more about who these soldiers were, um, and hopefully we'll get some answers soon. And, you know, one of the Egyptian officials said kind of in a cheeky, dismissing way to the UK media that got kind of tabloidy about this, like, a curse has not hit us. But like we said, would they know? I mean, hasn't a curse already hit us? 
That's a good point you make. Mm. You know, Sarcophagus stands unite. You know, maybe the Egyptian sarcophagus curse was just inside us all along. Wow. <laughs> you leave me with a lot to think of. Well, thank you so much for coming on and imparting your sarcophagus stand knowledge with us. <laughs> Anytime. Anytime. That's what I'm here for. I'm trying to make way too many puns or jokes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so Don't go away. Up next, Chantal and I are responding to your tweets. I gotta ask, are you a sarcophagus You know what, I was a little hesitant, but you kinda um, won me over a little bit, Stephanie. Yeah, I mean, it's hard when the sarcophagus are out, you know, tweeting in force for something. You kinda just gotta go big or go home with the sarcophagus stand-up. Yes, please, let that be a hashtag. Let's, uh, let's trend that, please. I know, I know. I, I just, I can't stop adding sarcophaga to every <laughs> single word I say, so I should probably stop talking about it. That's hilarious. <laughs> well, anywho, Christian had a reaction to the NFL's anthem policy. Every fan shoving a hot dog down their gullet while the national anthem plays needs to explain their action. <laughs> Honestly. That is a very visual image. It's yeah. an expressing a very good point, but I just can't stop picturing just like a dude slamming a I hot know. dog down its gullet. I have just a like visual I have a head. very clear mental image in my mind and I'm not just, into it too much. Let's I, just say it's not pretty. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree with him, but yeah. that's all I can picture. <laughs> I agree, too. <laughs> that's where I'm stuck. <laughs> Our executive producer, Patrick Benevin, says, I think my favorite thing about Chantal reading fire tweets is how much visceral joy she gets when she hits the button. She looks like she pulled off an elaborate heist <laughs> and had all the fun doing it. Oh, it's so cute. You, that's my favorite thing. I feel like a fi the five-year-old jumped out of me, okay? I love it so much. It brings me joy. I love it. I feel like, when, at least when I first started doing it, kind of still, I'm very, like, always just like, <laughs> I, like, you gotta lean, you gotta build up. You gotta really jump into the button. Just like. Like, yeah, really get into it. Yeah. Okay. Okay, okay. I, I feel like I'm just like a little too shy with the button. I just need to like go all Next in time, and just like we're just slam that button. Deep dive into the button, okay? Well, hopefully we'll have more chances to try yes, it out. Let's do it. I mean, hopefully we didn't like ruin the show, right? We didn't. No. Tweet us if we ruined the show. We didn't. Okay? <laughs> we're amazing. Yeah. Tweet us if we're the best part of the show. Yeah, tweet that. Yeah. Thank you. Just tweet us. <laughs> tweet us so we feel loved. We, we love attention. <laughs> amazing. Well, thank you to Charlie Wiesel. Karen J. Phillips, Zara Herji, Tarini Party, Cora Lewis, Bianca Gracie, and Julia Reinstein for joining us. And we have some great guests coming up next week, including John Cho, what? And Kelly McDonald, that is so exciting. And Isaac and Saeed are back on Monday morning. I mean, you're gonna okay. miss us. Yeah, will you miss us? We love you guys. Tweet us. We need we need we need some reassurance that yes, you guys we love. Do. We're just we love the attention. Have a great weekend, y'all.